I invite you now to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to finish up this, um, the third chapter of Matthew's Gospel. As you're turning there, I forgot to remind you um, that on Wednesday nights we started producing a kind of a prayer, uh, a prayer sheet uh, where you'll find updated, many more prayer requests and updated ones. Um, and I think they're located on that little table in the narthex there. If you go out. Matthew chapter 3. This morning we're going to focus on verses 13 through 17, but I'm going to read all the whole chapter to give us the context. Actually, I'll pick up in verse 11. So Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is John speaking, the Baptist. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let's pray. God in heaven. Please, we pray, let your word bear fruit in our hearts, the reading of it and the preaching of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What does a a father's affirmation mean in the life of a child? How important is it for a, a young child to receive the affirmation, the confirmation of his father? I think it means a great deal. It's one of the reasons that we attribute, and and I think rightly so, that many of the problems of our society um, stem from so many fatherless homes. And it isn't so much that homes lack the physical presence of a father. It is that so many homes lack the spiritual influence of a father. A father who day by day affirms, encourages his children to live to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who points his children to Christ as the center of all of life. What does a father's affirmation in that way means mean in the life of a child? It means a great deal. And this, it, no doubt, it means a great deal of humility, doesn't it? Parenting is an exhausting 
task. It requires a significant amount of self-sacrifice, of service, and the reward of parenting is often unseen. Sometimes it feels a little bit like that talent that was planted in the ground. And this sort of humble servant service, whether, whether of a parent or in any other sphere of life we know, can only be accomplished joyfully when it is enabled by the Holy Spirit looking to Christ. In that regard, we look to Christ not only for that enabling, not only that He might send us that Holy Spirit, but we also look to Christ as the model of that sort of self-sacrifice, that sort of labor of love, just like parenting, that sort of labor of love looking to the Father's affirmation. And there we see that example that to accomplish redemption, Jesus Himself became a servant who was filled with the Spirit and who received the affirmation of His Father. Christ Himself became a servant so that He might accomplish your redemption. He was filled by the Spirit and He received the affirmation of His Father. As we think about the context here, the focus of this passage of Scripture, verses 13 to 17, is, is firmly upon the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very easy to get those confused. His deity and His humanity. And as I read the context here, um, John has been preaching that Christ is, is remember Matthew's language there, in John's preaching that, that the Christ has a winnowing fork in His hand that He is ready to come forth in judgment to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so Matthew sets our expectation. What are we looking for when Christ is introduced to us? Well, we're looking for a powerful king. We're looking for one who is going to establish His kingdom. But what do we see? We see the Christ come forward not with a winnowing fork in His hand. Not in glory. Not the judge of all humanity. Not appearing as a great king. Remember, He's already received gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Our anticipation is built up. How is He going to come forth? But we instead see Him here meekly at the river's edge, asking John to pour out the waters of baptism upon him. We see him in his humanity. And so first of all, we're noticing from the passage that Jesus became a servant to accomplish your redemption. Now, Jesus' baptism here signifies His humiliation. It signifies the fact that in every way, except with our sin, he, 
He has taken upon us our hum- himself, his, our humanity. This is a stunning thing. This is the one that threatened Herod. This is the one that was worshipped by kings from the east. This one who stands on the bank of the Jordan just like I might to receive the baptism of John. What a stunning thing. I thought he had his winnowing fork in his hand. I thought he was going to be the one who baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. How can this be? How does this make any sense? Well, the first way that it makes sense for us, and just a side note here, that we notice something about the already and the not yet. That John has declared, hasn't he, that the kingdom of God has come on the earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a a term that we use for this called prophetic foreshortening. What in the world does that mean? Well, some of you have been on trips to the mountains and you know that as you look off in the distance and you see the mountains in front of you, often it looks like one steady mountain chain. And then when you get to those mountains, what do you find? That you, you rise up one hill and then you fall into a valley, that there's a separation between them. And we find that what John has revealed to us is, is two events A reality that will be fulfilled in two events. One is present. The kingdom of God is present, but its fulfillment is yet future. John has given us a glimpse of what is to come. Christ in His glory. But now we see Christ in His humiliation. Standing by the bank of the river. We remember, though, that he hasn't inherited corruption. Why does he need to be baptized? Isn't this the one who Matthew has been so careful to say that Joseph is not his father? Why the need for baptism? Aren't we reminded in chapter 3 and verse 11 that it's he himself who will baptize He is greater than John. He is mightier than John. Stronger than John. And John has already said, I'm not worthy even to carry his sandals. So we and John were met here with astonishment. And so the text says, if you notice, in verse 14, uh, the ESV translates here, John would have prevented him. Literally, John... John prevented him. John puts out his hand as a war or speaks the word and says, Lord, I can't baptize you. He resists him. I can't do it. I, I need to be baptized by you. I need the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. I need to be gathered into your storehouse. You're greater than me. But Jesus insisted He must, notice in verse 15, why? It is necessary, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is saying, I want you to note a couple things here. First, notice that Jesus here knows more than John. His wisdom at this point, John being about six months older than Jesus, Jesus' wisdom now exceeds that of John. 
an element of Christ's humanity is like you. He grew in wisdom. He learned things in His humanity. Infinite, yes, in His divinity. Yes, infinite in His wisdom and knowledge. Eternal and unchangeable in His wisdom. But in His humanity, He learned. We're reminded in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom. As He grew from a boy into a man, He grew in His wisdom. And remember as we reflected upon the necessity of Joseph as his earthly father, one who knew the law, one who was committed to doing the law, it's Joseph who taught the young man Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we're reminded that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, what's happening here in Matthew's part of this gospel is he's emphasizing to you the reality of Christ's humanity. And he's reached a point now at roughly 30 years old where he has learned enough to now be a prophet for the Lord. To preach his word. In fact... Everything that he has learned because he doesn't have the corruption of sin, he has learned perfectly and he understands his calling. And so now he steps out identifying with his people to receive the baptism of his people. And so this is what Jesus' baptism is. It is a reaffirmation of his commitment to the work of redemption. Christ, remember that He he entered into a promise. We're reminded in the Scriptures that before the foundation of the earth, there was a promise within the Trinity. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says that he is, his whole apostleship rests upon the promise of eternal life which God gave, which God who cannot lie made before the world began. Christ, before you were an inkling in the Father's eye, promised to accomplish your redemption in an eternal covenant. A triune covenant. And now, as He's taken upon Himself His humanity, now, Jesus says, notice in verse 15, let it be so now. Now is the moment. Now is the time that I have stepped forward presenting Myself as the incarnate man. We see an allusion here to Isaiah's Gospel, don't we? Christ is the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. The one who who doesn't bear any sin in Himself. And did you notice the distinction between the baptism of Christ and the baptism of the people uh, earlier in the chapter? How did they go out Confessing their sins, right? Does Christ confess any sin at His baptism? No. He has none of His own. But John has already said, remember, when He sees Jesus approaching, here comes the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Christ, in His baptism, He doesn't bear His own sin. He bears yours. I want to turn aside here just a moment 
to notice that oftentimes when we come to this passage of Scripture, many will take probably too much out of Matthew's Gospel and say, look, as we look at the way that Jesus was baptized, this is definitely an argument for baptism by immersion. He went down into the water. He came up out of the water. Simple answer to that is as we look at other passages of Scripture, Acts chapter 8, you'll remember that there Stephen and the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water and Luke records that they both came up out of the water. And so if we apply the same interpretation there, we would understand that they both were baptized at the same time and came up together. Only to point out that it isn't as definite as many of our friends would have us say. Matthew's not making an argument here for the mode of baptism. What we are intended to see in this, brothers and sisters, what you must see is the depth of the humiliation of your Savior in taking upon Himself your likeness. The one who is entitled to the winnowing fork came forth in your flesh. Not because of any requirement in Himself. He did not come to bear His own burden. He came to bear your burden. He did not come bearing His own sins. He came bearing your sins. He did not bear His own misery. He bore your misery. And He did so gladly. He had to do this, not because of any necessity in Himself, but because of the necessity in you. And He did it joyfully. Paul in looking at this estate of the Lord Jesus Christ, reflects upon it in his epistle to the Philippians. And you remember, when Paul wrote Philippians, he is a man who is imprisoned. It's one of the the prison epistles. And he's urging the church to unity. And he reminds us how it is that, that you and I remain unified when culture would divide us from one another. You remember how he did it in Philippians chapter 2? He said to us, having this mind in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Do you understand what's happening here? Christ has emptied Himself. The One who deserves all worship and all praise now submits Himself so low That one who doesn't even deserve to carry his sandals takes the water of baptism and pours it out upon him. John doesn't even understand and yet obeys. 
in business school, one of the things that you're required to do is look to the model and the example of other business leaders. And often you write reports about those men who have done well in business and you look at their models and their examples and you say, this is what I would do or this is what I wouldn't have done. This is why his company failed. And I was always struck by by the example of one particular man. A man who started an itty-bitty company in rural Arkansas named Sam Walton. A man who built an $8.6 billion company at the time of his death. And what was so interesting to me about Sam Walton is the story that anytime he would go and visit one of his stores, he was always seen as he would enter the store, walking through the parking lot, picking up trash. How is a man whose net worth probably exceeds the net worth of this whole congregation gathered this morning stooped to pick up gum wrappers in his parking lot? How do you Live in and amongst a culture that is saying to you as loudly as possible, as vociferously as possible, that your opinions don't matter and yet go forward and serve the very ones who are piling the hate upon you. How do you do that? Where do you find the energy? The strength. Paul teaches us that we look to this one who came to John to be baptized. Who humbled himself. Who deserved in his godhood to judge every man and yet was baptized by a man. We learn humility by recognizing what Christ gave up for us. It is not a sense of self-worth that makes men happy. Do you understand that? It's a sense of infinite debt. Bowing us at the throne of God and enabling us to rejoice in His great mercy. But how was Christ in His humanity strong enough, able enough, if He was every bit of man as I am, bearing my flesh, how was He able to bear this load? Well, we see, secondly, not only that Jesus come in the form of a servant to accomplish our redemption. Secondly, He he worked for our redemption. His work was empowered by the Spirit. We notice in verse 16, 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Did you know that Christ was baptized by the Holy Spirit? In His humanity, He was empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. His whole ministry, as it were, was a Holy Spirit-driven ministry. We are caused in this moment to reflect on the prophets who had come before. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we find Ezekiel also sitting by a river in the land of Babylon, the Kabar River. He says, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, listen to what Ezekiel says, The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Jesus is coming in the likeness of an earthly prophet. One who will proclaim to His people His visions of God. And in chapter 2, Ezekiel goes on and he says, And he said to me, Son of man, does that sound familiar? Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. This is what's happening in the life of Christ coming as the Son of Man. In the likeness of Ezekiel, He goes in and amongst the people who rebelled against Him in every way to declare to them the coming of a new kingdom. The Spirit has descended upon Christ. We notice that He comes how? As a dove. Many commentators have speculated why the Spirit came in the likeness of a dove. Was it purely of necessity? We, we recognize that the Spirit does not have a body. He's a purely spiritual being. He is the essence and substance of God, of the Godhead. And so he had to become, take some form to become visible to us. Well, others speculate that perhaps the dove comes to reflect upon the purity of the Spirit, that he has no sin, that there's no guile within him. Perhaps the answer is somewhat simpler. You see, Jesus reminded us that as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ in the world, we are to be Gentle as doves. And so as you reflect on Christ, again, in His humanity, what are you looking for? Are you looking at a harsh judge as one maybe like a Pharisee who is pure, too pure to be touched? One who resists the fellowship with those who do not fully affirm the law? No, you see, Matthew's pointing out to you that full of the Spirit, He is one who's gentle. One who is kind. Uh, one of my professors in seminary had us 
as we reflected upon the ministry of Christ in our own ministry, he said to us, I want you to go to John chapter 6 and look at the way that Christ interact with the, interacted with the woman at the well. And he asked us this question. He said, when you look at Christ's interaction with this woman, one thing you should notice, Christ commanded her. He said, woman, give me something to drink. And then when she responded to him, she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, asks me for something to drink? And he said to us, why is it that she interpreted his command as a question? And of course, we plumbed the depths of our theological understanding and came up with many profound answers to the question. And he made it simple. Perhaps it is that Christ's command was so gentle that she interpreted it as a question. The judge of the world comes forth full of the Holy Spirit, prepared to go in and amongst the people who have rebelled against the Lord in His perfect humanity, perfectly upheld by His divinity, to go and to proclaim to them the Word of God. And He goes forward with one, as one with the authority to baptize in the Spirit and with fire. But He is gentle as a dove. who proclaims to His people, how often, how often would I have gathered you under my wings? And yet, you resisted me. God has placed His Spirit upon His chosen servant, the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit first is endowed with that Spirit. And so we think about that now as, as you and I are baptized in the Holy Spirit by Christ according to His command and His will, who, by the way, did not speak in any sort of tongues in this moment, are reminded what that looks like. The Spirit, that same Spirit, endows us with that same gentleness, that same humility of Christ. He gives us the mind of Christ. Do you see that? When you are baptized with the Spirit, it's not outward signs that become readily apparent. It's the inward sign of a changed disposition, not just to God, but to my fellow man. You become the servant of all. Because I can say in myself, I am no better than my Lord. His whole ministry carried this disposition of gentleness, carried this power, and nothing Jesus did was possible apart from the Spirit who was given to Him without measure, and it's true also for you. You cannot resist the devil. You cannot defeat the flesh. 
You cannot grow in wisdom, love for God, love for your neighbor, apart from the Holy Spirit. In other words, just as Christ and His humanity was dependent on the eternal Spirit of God, so are you. So are you. Lastly, we notice that not only does Christ come in His humanity and in His humiliation for our redemption, He was baptized in the Spirit for our redemption. Also, Jesus' work for your redemption was affirmed by the Father in verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. First of all, you ought to notice that your redemption is a work of the whole Trinity. It is a Trinitarian work. It is a work done by the Father, by the Spirit, and by the Son. The work that the Son does is the work that the Spirit does, is the work that the Father does. It is an inseparable unity and should never be thought of as separate, distinct only in their persons. We know that it is a special feeling, as I said, to be affirmed by a Father. We're reminded that when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, as we pray to the beginning, our Father who art in heaven, we come, as the Catechism says, with all other childlike dispositions. We come to the Lord in prayer, seeking His affirmation, seeking His approval, wanting to be accepted by Him. But here, we remember that it's not just for a special feeling It is to indicate our acceptance and your acceptance with the great judge. Your interest in Christ is for nothing if He has not made you acceptable to God the Father. If He faltered in one step, remember that this voice crying out from heaven cannot say those words my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Many Christian songs promote self-love. One that's been really popular on the radio is this reflection, somehow worshipful, I am who you say I am. We twist Biblical principles to apply secular truths that somehow what's necessary for my well-being is a sense of self-worth. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of Paul. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from Christ Listen, if, if you, um, in Christ, you are loved, and this is what you have to understand from this, that the affirmation which was enjoyed by Christ at this point is the same affirmation that you enjoy in Him. When you come to Christ in faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with a spirit of humility before Him, confessing your sins in Christ, He looks at you and says, this is my child. In you am I well pleased. Not because of anything that you've done, 
but because you are in Him, clothed in Him. Because of that, Paul also can say this, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, including myself, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because it is secured by Him coming in your likeness. He has secured the love of God forever to you. This is the kingdom of Christ. Spiritual. Loving. To accomplish our redemption, Jesus became a servant who was filled with the Spirit and received the affirmation of the Father. Seek from Him the outpouring of His Spirit. That you too might live for God's pleasure. Look to His example of lowliness and learn from Him. Not so that you might please God, but recognizing that in Him you have the eternal pleasure of God. Amen. Father, Thank You for these encouraging words. We thank You most of all that Christ here is exhibited to us as a man. Not not a fallen and flawed and corrupt man as we are, but as the perfect man. The man in whom was no guile. The man whose ministry and life were defined by the gentleness of the Holy Spirit. Thank You that coming to You right now, cleansed by His blood, we may know Your infinite pleasure in us. We praise You in His name. Amen.